Welcome to Psyched, a podcast about psychiatry that covers everything from the foundational to the cutting edge, from the popular to the weird. Thanks for tuning in. But I think it's, and so I remember the first um, Grand Rounds I did where I decided I wasn't going to do a lecture. And um, I, I think it kind of shocked people in the audience that, no, we're, we're, we're actually going to do something different. And yet they walked away saying, this was fun. Wow. Tell that story. What, what, what was, uh, where were you? Who invited you? And, uh, did they know it was coming? <laughs> so, so, um, the first time I did it, it was for a quality improvement curriculum that I teach. And, um, the idea, so, um, so I asked everybody to come up with something they want to change in their own life and use that as a prompt for walking through the steps of, of quality improvement and how you um, set aims, how you measure outcomes. So, um, you know, so, so for example, you know, if you're going to set a goal for yourself, this, my, my favorite goal that residents always say when I say, oh, let's set some goals, it's always read more. And uh, that translates into probably nothing's going to happen. Um, so if you think about it in the quality, in the context of a quality improvement paradigm, then you're going to think about what exactly am I going to read? How much am I going to read? What's my goal? What's my timeline for doing that? And it's far more likely to happen. So we use that framework. I use that framework for teaching about quality improvement. So I, I did that exercise in, uh, in a grand rounds and people played, you know, I said, you're going to pair up with a neighbor and I want you to talk to your neighbor and and report back and um it was fun where where was it what was the room like what tell, tell us more about the, that picture um you know it was a it was a traditional auditorium you know so people were sitting in um you know seats in, in an auditorium and um kind of scattered about the room and um I think the one cha the one thing that you sometimes I sometimes have to do is get people to sit next to each other. So sometimes I say, okay, you're going to have to move to sit next to somebody because we're going to do something interactive. I think it takes people off guard. I think people are still a little uncomfortable about it. Um, I did um, some interactive stuff here at the APA and. You know, a couple people snuck out of the room rapidly. I noticed that too. <laughs> now that I'm that, I was noticing that it was like as soon as the workshop part started, everyone was like, some people just snuck out. Yeah. 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 I wonder what's scary. I mean, I guess it's scary to have to actively do something. I don't know. Well, I think there's a piece of it that, I think there's a piece of this thing that we're all afraid of being found out as a fraud that we don't really know something and and perhaps if you have to do something with someone else as part of an exercise you're going to feel um stupid or people are going to realize you don't you're not the expert you're supposed to be you know and i so i think i think there's some performance anxiety that that comes with that probably scary for all levels of whatever Absolutely. for different reasons yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if somebody finds out that we're not all omniscient, I mean, how are we going to be able to keep our jobs? Exactly. <laughs> so another thing we wanted to talk to you about was the, um, the, so in psychiatry, I mean, medicine in general, but particularly psychiatry, uh, we, we like to not measure things. 
uh, we, we prefer to just sort of go along without measuring things. And, and particularly in uh, psychotherapy training, um, there's a lot of thought, uh, particularly in psychodynamic or, uh, you know, th those, those sorts of approaches, that it really isn't science, and so you really can't measure things. And I know that some of your work is involved trying to, trying to measure that and trying to improve that. Um, yeah. How would you? I mean, how would you even approach? I mean, with with all of the the squishiness of psychodynamic, uh, the psychodynamic approach, how do you nail that down into something that is quantitative? Well, I think I think it depends on you know with any treatment what your goals are. So, um, and and many patients that that come to us for treatment have depression, anxiety, and there are standard rating scales available that you can use to measure those things and to track them over time. And so um, one of the classes I've taught is measurement-based care, and we really we literally talk about how do you integrate this into a weekly treatment, like how often would you want to do measurement-based care, and um, how would you integrate it into a psychodynamic treatment. And it's not really any different than any other treatment. They fill out the scale at the beginning of the session. You look at the scale, you have a conversation about the scale, and then you can talk about their mother. <laughs> That's usually where I go from scale to mother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but I think it's, I, I think it's actually um, incredibly valuable to measure outcomes with patients and actually, you know, not just your own subjective impression about how a patient's doing. So it provides you with more objective data about how a patient is progressing over time through treatment. But it's also an incredibly tool for self-monitoring for patients. They can see when they start to relapse, what are the first what are the first things on the scale that they struggle with? So one of my patients who who um, has bipolar, we know it's sleep, so we're tracking that item really, really closely. One of my patients who has um, OCD, I mean, I think the challenge was for her was um, it, even though we both would have a subjective impression of how she was doing, the numbers were far more useful for the both of us. So she would say, oh, you know, we would talk about should we make a medication change in terms of her treatment, and she'd say, no, I actually think this is probably my baseline. This is probably as good as I get. We pushed the medication. She got better. She's, and, and so for both of us, it was useful to say, oh, no, that wasn't your baseline. This is your baseline. This is as good as you get. So let's keep this as our marker and our goal in your treatment. So I think, I think no matter what kind of treatment you're doing, um, you want your patients to improve, and having real data for you and your patient to track that over time is helpful. And I know that also to, there's ways to measure whether the patient likes the doctor or feels like they're doing a good job, and we, you've been trying to integrate that some as well. Yeah, and that's challenging to our idea that we're always good doctors to all of our patients. <laughs> right, right. right. Or, or as a trainee that we're never good doctors oh, to yeah, any of our right. patients. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, so the Working Alliance Inventory is one particular tool where you can, you can track how... Um, how that's going and whether um, you, and, and I think that's particularly useful for trainees in terms of, and, and that's probably one of the most useful indicators of, of outcomes is how good of an alliance, working alliance you have. I think that probably translates into treatment adherence um, and, and lots of um, positive contributions in terms of outcome. So 
having that kind of feedback early on um, could be really helpful. Yeah. Also could kind of kick your ego down a little bit. <laughs> it could. So, yeah. so, um, so a couple of years ago, our residents did a quality improvement project where they did um, patient feedback surveys and they, um, they had patients, patients filled out the surveys anonymously and then residents got a, um, a graphic report back about how their feedback was relative, relative to their peers. And, um, but what was interesting is that, um, some people got feedback from only one patient and some people got feedback from 20 patients. And so, and actually the more positive feedback was usually from people who got feedback from lots of patients. Mm -hmm. So I think that the challenge with that kind of data is if you have one data point, not to overestimate the value of that data, whether it's positive or negative. Um, and for me, the take home point was really that the more data you have, the more accurate of a representation it's going to be. And as a psychiatrist, I think we also, you have to learn how to tolerate that every patient is not going to love you, um, and, and make a connection with you for all hosts of reasons. Maybe it's complicated. So we're talking about countertransference or, or maybe it's that they haven't come to terms with the illness they have and they're ambivalent about treatment altogether. So, so I think learning how to work with patients who are ambivalent about treatment um, is also a, a very useful skill to develop. Well, um, we're coming toward the end of our time and we'd like to ask a few uh, rapid fire questions. Okay. Again. And so uh, we will ask you to keep your answers to one to two sentences. And this is very hard for psychiatrists and uh, okay. affiliated people. So if we can, we can try to keep it to two sentences, that'd be spectacular. So okay. first question is, what is something that psychiatry as a field uh, can improve in or an area that we as a field kind of get wrong? Wow. One or two sentences, huh? If you want to talk longer, it's okay. <laughs> no, it's okay. Does that mean you have too much to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that, um, I wouldn't say that we get it wrong. I just think there's all these things on the horizon that's coming down the pike that we need to be paying attention to. So whether it's neuroscience training and the impact of neuroscience on our field, whether it's thinking about new healthcare delivery models and integrated care or thinking about resource manager, these are all things we could, we could do better and we need to do better. What's your favorite book? Oh, wow. Um, I'm probably not, I'm probably the, not a good person to ask that. Oh, you know what it is? It's better. It's better. By Tawanda. Yes. I love that book. It sort of goes with quality improvement. It does. (laughs) (laughs) I quote his stuff in my presentations all the time. Yeah. Uh, What's advice you would give to a trainee? I think I think trainees. Um, I think it would be about setting a framework for lifelong learning. I think we think you think, oh, I've got four years and I've got all this stuff to learn, and it's true. It, I think your learning during medical school and during residency is really exponential in terms of all the things you learn. But there are going to be extraordinary advances in the field in your lifetime, and you need to be prepared to adapt to those changes. So um, I, I would recommend approaching learning uh, in a way that really embraces lifelong effort. And who is a person, either living or dead or fiction, nonfiction, whatever, um, who you consider a hero? 
or someone you look up to? Wow. Um, well, there's a couple of different people that came to mind when, when you said that. I mean, I, I look up to my mother as a hero. She um, was a single mom um, for, for much of my childhood, uh, raising four kids, um, and really struggled financially. And I think that uh, she was still maintained um, her compassion. And um, so I, I look up to her. I would say I also really um, have been so fortunate to have Maria Okendo as a mentor. She um, uh, just so selflessly has been invested in my career and supporting me in a way that um, that I think you know she's just an amazing busy person with all these other things she's doing and the fact that she you know always set aside time to mentor me, um, I think that, that was incredibly special. So people, people like that. You'd mentioned having fun is important. What's something fun that you've done either as a child or as an adult? Just one thing. <laughs> Just one, one thing. Um, well, I have a seven year old and an eight year old and, um, I don't know, just spending time with them is super fun. You know, my my seven-year-old just learned how to ride a bike a couple weeks ago. And seeing his excitement at, like, figuring it out finally, um, it, that was really fun. Great. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank All you. All right. Thanks.